Whether you're a writer of books or songs or a reader of books and a listener to songs, you're going to really enjoy these interviews with some of our leading songwriters and authors. I certainly enjoyed conducting them. My name is Sophie Green and I am your host. Alison Tate, who writes as A.L. Tate, is the internationally published best-selling author of middle grade adventure series The Mapmaker Chronicles, The Ataban Cipher Novels, and The Maven and Reeve Mysteries. Her latest novel is The Wolf's Howl, a Maven and Reeve mystery number two, and it's out now in Australia and the USA. Alison is a multi-genre writer, teacher, and speaker with many years' experience in magazines, newspapers, and online publishing. She is the co-host of the top-rating Your Kids Next Read podcast and the former co-host of the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast. And Alison has interviewed me before, so now it's my turn. <laughs> hello, Alison. <laughs> well, hello. You know, I'd much rather be on your side of the table <laughs> than mine, right? <laughs> Hashtag too bad because this is happening. <laughs> so I'm going to ease you in. Tell us about The Wolf How, please, and tell us about the series because you do write these fantastic adventure stories for children. You create these worlds. You have these really likeable characters, so it's so easy to slip into them. Tell us about slipping into the wolf's howl. Now, if I was a proper author, I'd have the book, wouldn't I? I'd be like, <laughs> this is the wolf's howl. And I can't even show it to you because while I am all business on top here, I'm actually pyjamas on the bottom. So I can't stand up and actually even show you the book cover. But the wolf's howl is the second book in the Maven and Reeve mystery series. Um, I would love there to be more. So go and buy it immediately so that I get to write more of them. Um, the series is about Maven, who is a maid, and Reeve, who is a squire. And the pair of them are sort of swept up in this world of political intrigue. And in The Wolf's How, they've been taken off to a castle in the wilds of Glorn, and they have to find a missing cook. They are there for a whole bunch of other reasons, a cook has gone missing. The only person who is really concerned about this is Maven. Maven is not happy with the disappearance of a woman in this castle where, you know, there's a whole lot of business of men going on. Um, so it's a really interesting series to write. There's a lot of layers to it. You know, on one hand, it's a two-hand detective story. And when I was first sort of writing the series, I actually, I met Ree first. And I say met because he kind of just sort of swaggered up to me in his squire's gear. And he was all like, you know, how do you like me so far? I'm Ree, pretty confident sort of a guy. And he was heading off to become a squire at Renart Castle and desperate to be a knight. And like the, the, I draw off, I call them almost history because they're kind of fantasy adventure, um, but they're very much structured in medieval um, history and societal stratas and all of that sort of thing. So anyway, he rolls into Renart Castle all ready to swagger his way into knightsdom and, um, and he meets Maven there. Now, when I first conceived the idea of the story, I thought Reeve was my sheriff. Like I thought he was the guy. I thought he was the detective. I was like, I called him Reeve which is a medieval word for sheriff. Um, so he was going to be my man. He's very politically aware. He's been on his own since he was a page at seven. He's been sort of like working his way through the political strata of these castles. He knows what's what, which was unusual for me because um, all of the heroes in my previous novels had been the sort of reluctant type. They sort of like find themselves on these adventures. Well, Reeve is, he's ready for his. Um so he was the guy and I started writing because, you know, you're going to ask me at some point, Alison, what's your writing process? And I'm going to say, well, in an ideal world, Sophie, I'd be someone who plans out my entire novel right down to the beat sheet. And, you know, I would know exactly what was going to happen, particularly when you're writing complicated mystery stories. This would be a very good idea. 
However, this is not how I work. So I had to leave. I knew that this dazzling jewel had gone missing. I sent him off into this castle and he was the guy. So I started writing the whole thing from his perspective. And then as soon as he met Maven, I knew I was in a world of pain because she was never going to be a background character. She's an observer, but she's not someone who's in the background. So I thought, okay, well, it's a two-hander. I can do that. I can do Holmes and Watson, no problem at all. Um, and as soon as she started speaking, I thought, mm, this is nobody's Watson. What am I going to do now? She's the brains of this operation. And so what I ended up doing, and they're an interesting um, structure. So they are uh, all of Reeve's sections are written in third-person past. All of Maven's sections are written in first-person present. Very deliberate choices because it kind of reflects the worlds in which they inhabit within this greater setting. Maven's world is very small. She is a girl. She's not allowed to do much. So her world and her voice reflects that, whereas Reeve is, you know, Mr. Man About Town, so he's out and about doing his stuff. Um, so I, I, that that sort of developed, though. I had to rewrite the first 20,000 words of the first book three times I think mm -hmm. before I came up with that sort of structure so um as I said in an ideal world complicated mystery stories would be worked out all the way in advance so you knew exactly what was happening but I can honestly say that in both of the Maven and Reeve mystery stories the Firestar is the first one the Wolf Sale is the second one I was just as surprised as everyone else to find out who'd done it <laughs> that's part of the fun isn't it <laughs> really was it really and actually, you've, you've saved me having to ask one of my questions, which is when you dream up a new series, well, I'm asking it anyway, do you start with characters or something else? In this case, you started with Reeve, but in previous series, have you or have you started with characters or has something else, a central device or something, been the first thing you thought of? They always come from me. Um, I think they come from a question and they come from a feeling. So the Mapmaker Chronicles, which was my first series, um, actually came out of two conversations I had with my then nine-year-old son. He's now 19. Um, so we're talking some time ago, but, um, you know, just conversations that you have. So we, we're standing outside one night, we're staring up at the night sky. The reasons we were out there are embarrassing because we were, I dragged him out to have a mother and son bonding moment. And I tell kids this when I go and do my school talks and you can just see the whole room go, oh, <laughs> And we all laugh, you know, um, but we were standing out there looking at the stars and I'm thinking this is a beautiful moment and he turns to me and says, Mum, how far does space go? And you kind of stand there and you stare out into that universe and you realise we don't know and it kind of that feeling of not knowing and it makes your head hurt. And mm. then we were also talking about how they mapped the world. The next night, reading horrible histories, how did they map the world? And, you know, they had to go, they had to get in their boats, they had to go out there, they had to see, they had to do. So those questions, that question, how do they map the world, and that feeling of staring into space gave me this idea about a race to map the world. Mm -hmm. And it also gave me my character, um, Quinn, the hero, because when I thought about it, so he's he's a little bit my older son, Joe, and then he's a little bit me because my first response if someone said to me I'm going to put you on a tiny boat I'm going to send you off onto an endless ocean we don't actually know where the edges are pretty good chance you're not coming back because a lot of people didn't come back in those days how about it my first response is yeah nah I'm over <laughs> here with my book thanks very much which is essentially what Quinn's response is it's just like you know I'm fine thanks <laughs> I'll be right 
Um, so I think, you know, that's that idea of, of the question, the feeling, and then who's going to walk into the story. Mm-hmm. I guess also it's being alert to ideas being everywhere. So for you, it was standing outside with your son and he mm. poses a question and obviously that started something in your brain. Yes. I would imagine that that you do collect ideas because you have written quite a lot uh, of things. So you absolutely. do collect over the place. Yeah, I look, I when I go to when I do school talks, you know, you gotta boil this stuff down when you do school talks. So when I do school talks, I'm always saying to kids, keep a note of anything that makes you ask why and anything that makes you go wow. Because those two things are where the stories are. It's and it's it's a tiny thing sometimes. It doesn't have to be massive. I mean um, the Adaban Cipher novels came from a um, an article about the centenary of the discovery of the Voynich Manuscript, which is a medieval illuminated codex. You know, they found it in an attic in Poland in 1917 or whenever it was, um, and it was named after the bookseller who, you know, brought it to market. And the story was basically, the premise of it, it was about this big, and the premise of it was uh, for 100 years, people have been trying to read this book. No one can read this book. It's all written in code. The language is not related to anything we've, you know, anything else. What could it be? And I got to the end of it and all I could think was why? Why would you write a book no one can read? So then I I wrote the Adaban Cypher novels, you know, 110,000 words to come up with a response for myself. Now, that's a lengthy process for some people, but I just was like, it, it, the, the question of it really, really just captured my imagination. And so I, I followed it, you know, literally down a rabbit hole, basically. <laughs> what do you like about writing in a series as opposed to standalone novels? Well, I've come to the realisation that I, because um, I'm actually currently trying to write uh, some junior fiction. I've got an idea for a junior fiction series. And what I have come to realise is that my my brain is a very complicated place. And so serious fiction gives me room mm-hmm. to create these enormous puzzles and these mysteries and, and put sort of like clues within clues and, and characters within adventure. And um, and I think that's what I probably love most about series is that scope, um, particularly with fantasy adventure, because you can you can do what you want as long as it makes sense within the world that you create. Like it doesn't have to necessarily make sense, you know, out here, over there, um, but as long as it makes sense within the pages of that and particularly for middle grade, you know, middle grade readers will go anywhere with you as long as you give them a good reason to go there and as long as it makes sense because they will pick up so quickly on inconsistencies. I, I mean, I still go and do school talks and I'll be standing there and there'll be this kid that the Hannah. In book three of the Map Mega Chronicles, you said blah, blah, blah on page blah, 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 and I'll be standing there going, because, you know, <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote it in like 2014 and I, I can't remember. I mean, half the time I don't know what day it is, let alone what page I wrote that on. Um, so, yeah, you have to be consistent. And also I I, I made the, the joyous mistake of giving Quinn a photographic memory Um and when you have a memory like mine, which is terrible, a photographic memory is a really hard thing to write. I had to keep going back and checking, you know, <laughs> to, make sure, everything. <laughs> to make sure everything remembered everything exactly correctly. <laughs> now, you've written fiction and nonfiction. You've written for adults. You've written for children. I'm wondering what are the challenges of writing for children? Well, it's interesting um, because I, I think every 
every children's author has a sweet spot. I think that there's a spot where your voice just like rolls out and it's probably, it's interesting because I heard someone describe it as, you know, the spot um, in your life where maybe some, you had some major change or you had some, there's a significant, you know, time in your life. And often that is, that is the, the age group that you are, you know, that's your sweet spot for writing. And I would sort of agree with that in a way, because my, uh, so when I when I was 10, I had an epic move from the Northern Territory um, to the south coast of New South Wales with my family. I had been to four or five schools at that stage. I was at a new school. I was 10. Um, and it was just, it was big. And then, and then my brother was born, uh, you know, I'm 10 years older than he is. And he was born like a year later. So it's one of those periods in my life where I think at the time I probably didn't like take notes about, oh, this is a big moment. Um, but when I look at my writing, when I look at where the natural sweet spot is for my writing, it is that age. It is 10 to sort of 13. It's that moment where um, you know, you can have those big changes in your life. You're on the cusp of growing up. You're on the cusp of going through that massive adventure um, that is getting through your teen years and becoming an adult. And so that's my natural sweet spot for, for writing. That seems to be, um, you can be complicated in that age group as long as you are within the realm of what middle grade is. Um, now that I am trying to write other things in, cause I've, I set myself a challenge. I want, I'd really love to get a, a picture book published. So I've been writing picture books, not easy for someone who likes 65,000 words to, you know, to tell half a story. Um, so I'm trying to work on picture books. As I said, I'm working on junior fiction. I'm too complicated for junior fiction at the moment. I need the complexity of the idea without the complexity of the language. So I think it's really important as, as authors to to challenge ourselves and to do different things um and it's also incredibly humbling because i you know you just get it wrong i've had it i've got it wrong uh, you know several times but i also know if i keep doing it and i keep listening to other people and i keep asking for advice and i keep you know practicing and reading i'm you know the other thing is you know reading a million picture books and a million junior fictions i've i've got faith i'll get there it just might take me a bit of time now you talked about um, writing for the age of 10, basically, because that was the age which had greatest impact on you or the biggest change in your life, rather. It seems that, that you're trying to make sense of the, the world for you at 10 in a way. And I do think that writers in general are trying to make sense of the world in whatever form that takes or try to make sense of it for their readers. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's also like that age group for me, like um, as a a voracious reader, always have been my whole life, still am today. Um, It's it's probably what I remember uh, where I read a lot of uh, formative novel, like formative books for me. And I think because that's the sort of age, I think when you, you get to that sort of 10 to 12 age, you're kind of branching out into those, into bigger books, into independent reading. Um, You know, I run the Your Kids Next Read group and on Facebook and I see a lot of, you know, people asking for different things. And it's really funny because we joke about the fact that at least once a month, at least once a month, there'll be a conversation about whether or not this particular book is appropriate for a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old or whatever. And at least once a month, there's a whole riff off down in the comments about everyone who was reading Flowers in the Attic when they were 10. You know, it's it seems to be like, you know, what what kids read now and what's available to them on the bookshelves now is quite different to what, 
to oh, some of the yeah. things that we were reading. Now, I was not reading Flowers in the Attic at 10. However, you know, I was reading, um, I was reading a lot of Trixie Belden and Famous Five and I was reading a lot of, you know, Anne of Green Gables, Red Hair. Like I was just so on board with Anne. So, you know, there was just a lot of books. Um, there was a book called Callie's Castle by Ruth Park, which just spoke to me on so many levels. I've just had a, um, a podcast interview about that, you know, just it was about a girl who just desperately wanted a room of her own. She was the oldest of, you know, X number of kids. And I was the oldest of X number of kids. And I was sharing a bedroom with my sisters. And it was just, you know, and this idea of having a turret <laughs> all to myself was just heaven. And you know what? I think I've been searching for that turret my whole life. I'm still looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we're playing Beanie Bye by Ruth Parker. It certainly yeah. shaped me to a great extent because just that that whole idea of, of, dimensions of time being parallel yeah. Yeah. um not just being able to traverse them but also setting it so firmly in sydney which is where i grew yeah. up and and having that story in streets that i knew in in landscape that i knew was yeah, formative for me so ruth no ruth many many people so which other books were formative for you Oh, well, as I said, like I look, I'm a, a strong reader of mystery. I've always been that. Uh, so as a kid, that was what I read. I read Famous Five, Secret Seven, Trixie Belden. I read everything on the shelf, Nancy Drew, like all of those sorts of books. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I, I wrote the Maven and Reef Mysteries was because I just wanted to see if I could because, you know, you spend your life, I still read crime fiction to this day and love it, like, and I love a procedural, you know, and I love trying to figure out, you know, beat the author at their game. It's so disappointing to me when you read a book and, you know, you're on page four and you're like, oh, he did it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's really disappointing, yes. No, um, but I'll be like I'll be watching TV series with my with my poor husband, you know, we're watching some detective thing and, and I'll be like, oh, it was him. And he goes, can you just not do that? <laughs> but, you know, you get when you read a lot, you get used to like what the beats yeah. of those things are. And, um. Yeah, so I wanted to see if I could write one because I just think if you're someone who reads an enormous amount, at some point in your life you get to the point where you think maybe I can do this and that's what made me start write, not writing novels in the first place. You know, I started writing romance novels when I was about 25 because I just thought I'm just, I'm just going to see if I can and, you know, I wrote 60,000 words not really a book, but 60,000 words, you know, like when I look at it now, um, but you know, that's how you, that's how you learn. You, you, yeah. you do that. And then you do that again. And I mean, I've probably written a million words, I think, and not all of them published. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you have to write out those stories and it's, it's getting away from the idea that every word is precious. Yeah. The story yeah. is precious and advancing the story is, is the job. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes those words just fall by the wayside whole manuscripts fall by the wayside to do that. They do. And I, I think it's that's a lesson that you have to learn as well, is that not every single thing that you write is a winner, not every single thing that you, you know, like, and sometimes you you might write something and then, um, you know, then it needs to go away and it needs to come out again in three years time. And maybe that's when it, that's when it becomes um, a novel. And that that's actually, I've got a book coming out in August called The First Summer of Callie McGee, and it's a middle-grade uh, novel. It's contemporary. It's a mystery. Like I'm calling it cosy, a cosy detective story for kids. And it's something that I wrote, you know, three years ago, and it just wasn't quite right for what I was doing at the time. And obviously I've written a lot of fantasy. And so where I was in my publishing journey was, uh, you know, contemporary is not really where you are, Alison. Um, but the time 
for it is right now. So it's coming out in, in August, which I'm excited about. I'm also really nervous. It's funny because you kind of get into the groove of what you do and you know that you do that really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to produce something that is actually quite different um, and contemporary is quite different. It's quite, mm-hmm. everyone says, I can't believe you create entire worlds from scratch. And I'm mm-hmm. like, it's easier than trying to work with you <laughs> the constraints of the world that we have you know yeah yeah well given that you love Trixie Belden as did I the idea of a cozy mystery for a kid is fantastic yeah I'm excited yeah so when you have an idea for a new story and you want to turn it into a novel or you think it could be a novel do you have a set process for each book that you follow like because I like I have planning documents or are you a start it and see person I'm a start it and see person um my dear friend Alison Rushby, who is a spreadsheet, beat sheet planner, has been trying to turn me into someone who um, plans for a long, long time. And she and and she rightly says it would make my life so much easier. And it's true, it would. Um, but I have just come to the realization. I, I like I always know where my books are going. Like I I I, I start. I've got an idea. I know what's going to happen at the end. And. That's it. Um, so for me, the middle of a book is always, you know, really heavy going because momentum will get you through the first 10,000, you know, even 20,000 words. Um, and you can probably do the last 10,000 because you've got an idea what's going to happen towards the end. But that leaves like a fair whack in the middle that that requires, you know, pushing through. Um, but for me, the discovery of that is is actually most of the pleasure of writing is is actually in the discovering process of oh of course that's what's going to happen next um and getting to know the characters so I have to redraft more than my dear friend Alison Rushby and probably more than you um but that for me is just part of the process so the first draft is start it and see get the story down get to some semblance of the end and then I go back to the start and I look at at the overall thing. And usually by the time I've got to the end, I've got a fair idea of what I need to fix as I go through. And often, and still to this day, often that also means taking about 5,000 words off the start of the story and beginning at chapter two um, because chapter one is me figuring out the backstory and who's who in the zoo and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But it's just it's just part of my process. But it's a lot slower than here's my plan. And can I sell on my plan? (laughs) (laughs) Much better idea. But also to make a plan would be against your nature because clearly you know your nature as a writer and this has worked for you. So even though, yes, procedure may work for other people, planning planning and procedure may work. If it's not in your nature, I don't think it's advisable to do it. I'm a big believer in that. It's good to know your own nature as a writer and, and stick with that, work within that. Well, I think it's a good idea to try both ways. Like, I think it's a really good idea. I did attempt uh, planning. um, And what I did was I was working on an adult novel. This was like many years ago. I was writing an adult novel and I decided that I would, uh, because I wanted to, it it was quite a complicated ending and I wanted to make sure I could make it work. So I had written, you know, 40,000 words or something. And I decided that I would plan out the second half of the book. Now, the difficulty came for me in the fact that I had planned it all out. I'd outlined everything. I knew what was going to happen and I totally lost interest in writing it 
because I knew what was going to happen. So it took me such a long time to kind of like get up the motivation to go back to the book and actually get that manuscript finished um, because I knew what was going to happen. So the that idea of like figuring out like I, I'm as interested in what's going to happen next as the reader is because I'm working it out at the same time as the reader is. <laughs> But I guess that points to the magic of the process as well, really. And oh, there, yeah. there is a bit of magic in it because, yes, we don't know what's going to happen necessarily. Even with no. Quite a bit. I don't plan that far ahead. No. I do planning in order to start rather than planning far ahead. Yeah. Uh, and because well, I like to rely on that magic element as well, yeah. like let the characters have some room to do whatever they're going to do. I just um, I don't think I ever fully understood the power of the subconscious until I started writing novels and I never understood that, you know, you can have stuff going on back here in the cortex um, that is just, it's just quietly like weaving away and then you sit down and somehow it is coming out your fingers without even seeming to have a conscious, it's it's fascinating. And I, I spend a lot of time um, and I've always advocated this, I, I walk a lot when I write, um, I weed a lot. I wash dishes. I, I do a lot of, I, I call it active meditation because I am not good at sitting still and thinking thoughts. Terrible. Um, so for me, it's like as long as my body is in motion in some kind of mindless way, and I can just leave my subconscious to get on with it. And if I do that and then come back to my desk, it's somehow, I, I don't know, I, it's about the, tr- it's the trust in the process and you kind of have to learn to trust it. And, and I find if you learn to trust it, it means that you don't end up with that thing where you're telling the reader everything on the page all the time. It's like, okay, well, if my subconscious has worked this out as I've gone along, I can probably trust that the reader's going to fill the gaps in too as they go along. Um, well, fingers crossed. That's that's the plan. Uh, and I agree about the waiting. It is the best. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very satisfying as well. Um, now, you have taught and mentored a lot of writers, and I think in doing this interview we can tell why because you're so articulate and knowledgeable and experienced. What are the misconceptions about writing that you see over and over again? Okay, so I think the biggest misconception that I see about writing is that it's this wafty inspirational thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if more people understood that the way to get a book written is is this sort of not very Instagrammable discipline scheduling routine I think if people understood that more then more people would actually get books you know finished it's that sense of creating a habit because they I, I met a lot of people who were like I'm gonna write a book one day or you know if only only I had time I, I'd be able to write a book um so you know I, I I think if people understood that the only way you make you write a book is to make time to do it I think that would that and you cannot sit there and or actually you can't wander about and wait for the muse to turn up because, you know, I always say to people, you just have to assume she's stuck in the car park and that she'll be at the meeting about 10 minutes late. So if you start without her, uh, things will kind of roll on. I think that's that's one of the things that I see. I think the other thing, and I've done this, everybody does this, I'm probably still doing it, is um, that, you know, that idea of it's that impatience with wanting to get your work out there. So, I mean, I still do it. it's, it's, you know, sending out drafts when they're not ready. It's um, not understanding that publishing works at glacial pace. Like it's 
unbelievably slow. I I always have always said that I am absolutely in the wrong business for my personality type, but because the waiting around drives me absolutely crazy. Um, but what I do is use that time well. So I'm not sitting around checking my inbox every 35 seconds. I'm actually just writing something else. And I have got better at that as I've gone along. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in terms of mistakes being made by writers, probably in the execution of ideas rather than the and you know, expecting certain things uh, to happen in certain ways. Do you say that see? Do you see the same mistakes being made by different writers? So it's just like this is a common thing that happens. Yeah. Look. Uh, look. I think it's. Um. I think people start their story in the wrong place. There's way too much backstory in the first chapter or two, um, rather than starting in the action. And this is particularly um, prevalent with children's authors. The other issue I see a lot with children's authors is the focus on the message rather than on the story. Um, There's a lot of, I want to write a book about, you know, changing the world. That's brilliant. But actually what you need to do is write a really great story that implies that message that you want to give. Um, uh, there's, There's an idea, I think, that you have to dumb, again, I'm talking about children's authors, that you have to dumb things down for kids. You don't. Um, as I said, the, my challenge with junior fiction is not the complexity of the idea, which I am absolutely going to uh, maintain, but I need to look at, I, I just, I use too many compound sentences, which, you know, early readers can't do. Um, that, And I use, you know, lo- I, I'm, I'm a big fan of a three-syllable word in a junior fiction novel. Apparently can't do that. Um, so, yeah, so, but if you read my middle grade, um, I use the word that I think is right. I don't use the word that I think that um, is, is suitable for a 10 year old. And I think that that's really important because you never learn, your vocab never gets bigger if you're not reading stories in which the words maybe require you to ask someone what it means or look it up or something like that. So um, yeah, it's that idea of that you have to kind of talk down to kids. Um, kids don't need to be talked down to. They just need a great story that's kind of pitched at their age group. Yeah. And what is the best writing advice that you've ever been given? I probably came from you, Sophie. I doubt that very much. <laughs> but it was probably akin to something you just said, which is just, you just got to sit there and do it. I think, yeah, I think so. I don't know. Like you were always very good at advice. Um, I'm best writing advice I've ever been. Look, there's so, like, honestly, there's so much, there's so much great writing advice out there. And there's so much terrible writing advice out there. I think I think the best advice you can give anyone is to check the source of your advice, like where's it coming from, um, and only take your advice from people that actually have done what you're trying to do. I think that's really important. Um, best writing advice I ever got, oh, finish the damn book. That was the best writing advice I ever got. Finish yeah, because you, you can't fix nothing. Can't fix nothing. <laughs> you can't edit a blank page, Alison. Yeah, go finish the damn book. It is always going to be edited. And actually, I should ask you because you have written and published a few books now. Do you enjoy the editorial process? Some people say they do, um, or some people might enjoy this structural edit and not the copy edit, or vice versa. Uh, so, yeah, do you enjoy any part of it? Well, I I will say this up front. I have come to recognise and understand what an absolute privilege it is to be edited and to be edited well. Um, I really have come to understand that. The first structural edit that I ever got threw me into an absolute panic. I will, an absolute panic. They're very, it's very confronting because, um, you know, it's a, until you understand that what you're getting is feedback, 
to help you make your manuscript better rather than criticism as to why this is not working. Um, if you can flip that on your on its head and, and look at it that way, then yes, the editing process is something I enjoy. Um, but I will never ever get over the confronting aspect of it. Like I get my edits, I still, all these years later, I get my edits and they, they comes in and I write, okay. So I take a deep breath and I'll kind of come at it sideways a little bit. I'll open it up and have a quick scan through and then I'll close it. And then I'll walk away and then I'll come back to it maybe a day later and I'll have a proper read of what, what's going on. And if there's something in there that I am, you know, that really sort of upsets me, which sometimes there is, I remember having a conversation with my publisher about a character in the Adaban Cipher and she was like, you know, because there's four fantastic girl characters in that novel and she was like, look, you know, maybe we need Destiny's Child here and not the Spice Girls. Like maybe there needs to be three of them. And I'm like, dude, no, she's really important. Like she's got an absolute role to play in book two. And she goes, well, I'm not seeing it. So if she's important, you need to put her on the page. And actually maybe that's the best writing advice I ever got. Put it on the page. Like you can have a million things going on in your head, but if someone reads it and it's not on the page for them, you haven't done your job. And I think that that's, um, that, that lesson for me was Destiny's Child versus the Spice Girls. I ended up with the Spice Girls. And I was very happy with that. But, you know, I think it's a, it's important to recognise that if you're going to put a character in a book, they it needs to be obvious why they're there. <clears throat> that is great advice. Um, I'm going to consider that myself, absolutely. Yes. Uh, now, just to veer away from writing and towards music, because this is a books and music mm. podcast, normally I ask authors at this point for their favourite musical artists, but instead I'm going to talk about your son, Joe Visser, who is a very talented singer-songwriter who has released his own music. He has. <laughs> Do you know you- what? I've got a CD here. I don't have my own books, but look. Oh, Joe's excellent. I was hoping you would. Um, Joe is great, a great songwriter and a, a lovely singer. Uh, and I'm wondering if either directly or indirectly you feel you taught him about storytelling. You know, this is a really interesting conversation because just recently he um, got asked on a radio interview, he was asked, you know, where where did the music come from? And he kind of wafted around a bit about, you know, dad's CD collection and this, that and the other and I sent him a message afterwards. I'm like, dude, like if we're going to build the story here, let's build the story. You can just say, mum gave me words, dad gave me music. That's all you need to say. And he's like, oh, righto. Yep. <laughs> let's build the myth. Um, look, I he is like if we're talking about uh, voracious readers, he is that kid and he has been that kid since he started reading when he was four. And he's also... Um, He's a, a an unusual, uh, you know, he's a teenage boy who he's read poetry, he's read politics, he's read philosophy, he's read, you know, he reads uh, nonfiction, he reads fiction in equal measure. Um, so, yes, I think that my my influence is obviously is ob- is obviously in here's a book, here's a book, here's a book, <laughs> throw books at you here. Ah, they're ducking books in my house. Um, and obviously we talk, you know, when it, particularly when he was younger, he doesn't, you know, he's not quite as excited about discussing these things with me anymore. Um, but when he was 10, we used to talk a lot about, you know, books and writing and, and ideas and, and, you know, he's the guy, he's the, 
our fighter space go guy. Um, so I, I think, yes, from that perspective, being surrounded by books and conversations about books, being dragged to book launches, being taken to author talks, you know, all that stuff. Yes, uh, that's an influence. But um, someone who is going to go on with that and read as widely and as deeply as he has, that's all him. I can't take credit for that. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you're very proud of him and no doubt he's proud of you too, not that teenage boys can say no, that too often. Tell, <laughs> tell me that. But, yeah, I yes, I'm, I'm sure he absolutely, he, he thought I was pretty cool when he was nine. I, it's, it'll still be in there. It'll still yeah, be. it'll come but back. We, I could talk to you for hours and, and, and ask you for advice. However, I think people should go to your website and I'll put that in the show notes and uh, find out more about you because you do teach and mentor writing Alison Tate, A.L. Tate, what a delight it has been to talk to uh, you. It's always a pleasure, Sophie. Like, as you say, we could just, why don't we just do a series? We can just do this every week. I'll interview you one week. You can interview me the next week. <laughs> it could end up being like two hours an episode. Well, it's something to ponder. <laughs> Thanks, Alison. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Writing Books and Music podcast. If you'd like to know more about the writer you've just listened to, please go to the show notes.